On this special bonus episode of the Africa Whisperer, we celebrate our partnership with Hexa Media, which is a full-service digital media agency that helps African nonprofits and impact-driven businesses to leverage tech, media, and communications for growth and impact. Our first guest on this very special episode of the Africa Whisperer is Mrs. Faith Adole, who is an exceptional leader in the global healthcare sector. As the founder of Uval Foundation, she's been a beacon of hope, channeling her extensive education and experience in nursing towards the healthcare and wellness needs of the less privileged, with a spotlight on Africa. Faith's mission is rooted in her first-hand experiences during international medical outreaches, witnessing the acute challenges faced by disadvantaged communities. She She is this year's recipient of the African Heart Award, which is focused specifically on Africans in the diaspora doing great work that is touching and impacting Africa. Faith Adole, welcome to the Africa Whisperer. I am so excited to speak to you. But first, I'm always the person who exposes. I need you to talk to me about chicken licking and I need you to talk to me about plantain girl. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, girl, two of my favorite things. I love it. You know, the Nigerian in me loves my plantain. Yeah. I could eat it breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Yeah. Um, but I went to South Africa, and I've been to so many different countries, and I've never tasted chicken that I felt like, you know, was up to par in terms of, I live in the U.S. Yeah. So I'm like, we have good fried chicken. But what I went to chicken licking is number one. There ain't <laughs> no chicken say. like chicken licking. That's the real soul food. Yeah. And the problem right. is that once you have a little <laughs> yeah. bit, you just can't stop. It's mm-hmm. insane. <laughs> Right, right, exactly. But Faith, it's so exciting to be able to speak to you. I love the work that your foundation is doing, um, Yuval. And so I really am, you know, excited to share your story with everyone. As you mentioned that you are uh, in America, you're American, we can all hear, but you are Nigerian as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So just talk to us a little bit about that. Just give us a bit of your family background. Sure, that's a great question. Um, Yeah, I'm very much, I guess, Nigerian as I am American. I'm sure you can tell by how I speak. I was raised in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I'm first generation American. So my entire family is from Nigeria. And what's unique is also my siblings are too. So I'm the youngest. Yeah. I just happen to be born here and raised here. But my siblings, my parents are all Nigerian. Okay. My spouse is Nigerian. <laughs> so, Everyone, yeah. <laughs> right. And for you growing up, because um, I know there's always especially when you're first generation, there's so much pressure because obviously families have moved to mm. different countries for reasons. So what was that experience like for you growing up in um, America as when you go back home, everybody knew that you were Nigerian. You may have been born in America, but your whole family yeah. is Nigerian. So what was that experience like when you were at school versus when you were at home? Some of the funny things that perhaps happened? <laughs> yeah, I really felt that I grew up between two worlds. There are a lot of positives to that, but yeah, sometimes it was stressful. I felt that Mm -hmm. here in America, when I would go to school and my friends would want to do certain things or invite me certain places, my parents would be like, absolutely not. You can't do that. (laughs) And I'm like, but why? This is customary here, you know? And then, Mm -hmm. um, like my, my eldest brother, he's very Nigerian too. So it it was kind of tough, but I felt like my, my siblings kind of helped me to navigate both sides. And also what helped me was my parents exposing me to my culture from a young age. I think the first time I traveled Mm -hmm. to Nigeria, I was three years old. So um, for me, uh, it was just like, even now, it's just like going home. (laughs) Even though I haven't lived there, I've always felt very connected to my people. 
and just proud yeah. to uh, be where I'm from. And what I like about you, because most people that I speak to who um, are they, are not in their original home countries, yeah. there's always this conversation around like the career choice that they've made, you know? Oh. <laughs> but you, you basically, I think you've chosen something that most African parents, especially, you know, at a particular time would be happy with. So the decision to go into nursing, was it because somebody in your family was in nursing? How did um, that come about? Or is there a story behind that? Yeah, that's a great question and good point. There's a lot of pressure about what we should do as a profession. And um, I felt it. My parents, I think they wanted me to go into medicine. So not nursing. They were like, you know, either medicine, pharmacy, or <laughs> be a doctor or a, a lawyer and all of that. Yeah. Um, and I, at one point, I actually thought that I wanted to to be a doctor um, only just because I just love caring for people. I love being around people mm -hmm. in general. I thought of like things like mm -hmm. teaching or I always found uh, medicine interesting because I like things like science. But for mm -hmm. nursing, it kind of really found me. So um, it's not something I thought about before, but my first experience mm -hmm. with a nurse really understanding what they do is when one of my family members was very ill and I really mm. felt like wow like it's actually the nurse that's like right at the yeah. bedside taking care of everything even counseling them through being their advocate mm. and I remember being a family member pre-nursing I felt like wow I, I just admired <laughs> I admired mm. nurses and um, didn't know I wanted to be one until I actually kind of had a um, I would say a divine encounter. I had a dream, a couple of dreams, and I saw myself mm. doing what I'm doing now, which is going to different wow. countries and, you know, being in something medical or nursing I didn't know. And I'm like, this is very interesting. <laughs> so, yeah. And then once, uh, I think shortly after that, the next week, my mother had asked me, you know, have you ever thought about nursing? And I'm like, well, that's so interesting that you asked me that <laughs> because no, but I just was dreaming about it and. She felt like there's no pressure at all, but, you know, you you have the, like, the skill set and the heart for it and just the natural abilities. Mm. And so I gave it a try. Mm. And here I am. I just love that story so much because it really talks about purpose. Like, right. there are very yeah. few people who, it's like you'll literally have a dream or something mm -hmm. like that that shows you um, almost a trailer of your future, right. which is so incredible. Right. Sometimes even when you know where it is that you're meant to go, there's a lot of challenges along the way. So just studying and becoming a nurse, were there any obstacles and challenges that you faced along the way? Or was it once you got the vision, it was smooth sailing? It wasn't smooth sailing. <laughs> it, um, I actually, just a part of my story and, and testimony is that um, I never, I, I don't know, I never was that like A student mm -hmm. from a young age. I just was kind of getting through. I dealt with a lot of different challenges as a young person, even from like high school age that was like some things with self-esteem, mental health, and that leaked into my grades, I felt like. And so mm. I kind of shied away um, when I went to university age from even doing anything sciences or math or engineering because I felt like I couldn't do it. But it was all a lie. It's not true. <laughs> so I went into that and I um, that affected me a lot. But it really took... Um, mentorship from another woman that was like no you can do that all those things don't exist about women can't do math women can't do this and I really held on to her words and kept putting one foot in front of the other and it was with time I realized that wow I, I can do this and 
and we went on from there. But it was a struggle at first. So I always love to mention that in my story because people maybe look me up and they're like, oh, wow, she goes to Hopkins and this and that. But I'm also the same person that almost didn't finish high school, you know, had issues with my grades, almost had to repeat and all of that. I really love that because it's just it's encouraging to people because sometimes it exactly like what you say, somebody will look at your life and it's like the price that came with it or Mm -hmm. the obstacles or the almost didn't happen is almost unbelievable. So how long were you a nurse before you started um, your NGO Mm -hmm. UVOL? I love it. (laughs) Like when I was reading up on it and the work that you're doing, honestly, I was so touched because I'm like, wow, there are people out there who are actually making a difference. So from from the time you started being a nurse, how long did it take before you decided to start your NGO? You know, was it a chicken and egg situation? Mm. Yeah, I started about four, four or five years after I became a nurse. That's when I launched uh, the Yuval Foundation. And what was the trigger for it? Sure. I think already just I was already involved with a lot of humanitarianism, volunteerism, even pre-nursing, just I think exposure from my family. My family always volunteered at Mm -hmm. different things from at church or things in the community. So it Mm -hmm. seemed quite natural to me to be in that Mm -hmm. space. But then um, it wasn't until Mm -hmm. I I took a trip, I think back in 2011 or 2012 to Nigeria. And this time it was specific Mm -hmm. for like a volunteer medical mission and I was a new nurse practitioner then, and I was serving in like a nurse coordinator role or so. And um, the things that I experienced there, I could never forget yeah. about them. It was just, I knew I had seen, you know, maybe poverty or people struggling, but being immersed in my um, the role that I was, I saw some different things, like our people need advocates. I felt like there were a lot of mm-hmm. inequities happening, a lot of like, mm-hmm. you know, white savior uh, Mm -hmm. syndrome or people were doing you know anesthesia or not doing anesthesia on folks that needed surgery but then the patients were like well yeah still do it because I don't know when they're going to come back there was a bit of that and then it was also where I felt like wow representation really matters because a lot of the women and young girls were gravitating towards me kept asking how did Mm -hmm. you get in this role like I would love to be a nurse or I'd like to be like you, you know, can I get in touch with you? A lot of that. And in, and this is in a, a remote village. So for those reasons, I really felt that I need to say something about what I saw. I can't be silent about it. Mm. I didn't at first think I should start an, an NGO, but I had a very um, candid conversation with my father, which I'm very close with. And I was complaining. I'm like, and this happened and this happened. And he's like, well, you know, you may you have one perspective of what's going on there. And if you want to be an advocate and change it, you need to immerse yourself in that field. See all the different sides, the NGO side, this, that Mm -hmm. government, you know, economics that plays into everything. And so um, he was like, it's simple. If you're serious about this, you should start your own and try and do things differently. And I took him up on it. (laughs) So it's been eight years later. That's incredible. And from my understanding, your first, the first outreach that you did under UVOL was with homeless people yes. in, in Southern California, yeah, right? Absolutely. So whenever you start something, mm-hmm. no matter what it is, I'm sure there's like butterflies, there's challenges, there's obstacles, just the whole prep of that. Talk to us about that. The people you had to get involved, you know, getting yeah. your family, your friends, was your dad carrying things yeah, for you? Yeah, he was. You know, getting the community involved. <laughs> what was the yeah. <laughs> what is the whole setup of That's that? That's a great question. I love that. It just takes me back 
And as I look back, I'm super grateful. I was nervous. I didn't have a background and I didn't study global health or community development or public health at that time. And so I didn't have experience Mm -hmm. for it, but I had a a passion and a drive and a Mm -hmm. conviction. So for me, it was a lot of trying to to read, to find out, you know, the basics of how do I start, be okay compliance wise. And then beyond that, it was really trying to get support from family, from friends. That's how I started my workplace at the time. And I found that just being candid, honest, and genuine about what I wanted to do, people latched onto that. And there's a lot of people that want to make a difference or help, but they maybe are looking for someone to lead that or start it and then they'll follow. So that was my experience at first. It was all hands were on deck. That's awesome. And the name um, Yuval, United Vessels Uh of Love, such a beautiful name. Where did that come from? Was that also from a dream? Because I'm beginning to think that you dream about everything. No, it wasn't for a dream. Did you have a dream that said United Vessels of Love? No, but (laughs) that would be nice. (laughs) No, it just came from, you know, when I I started first and had the, the vision of it, then the name came later. I really just focused on what I really wanted the core, the heart of Yuval to be about. And it's uniting with others. So no one feels like I have to be this caliber or be this type of person before I can join with others to help. It's just we're all uniting for one purpose, which is sharing love with others. And um, yeah, it just, I don't know. When I thought about it, it just kind of clicked. (laughs) And so I wrote it down as a vision. I'm very into mm-hmm. kind of writing things down and I felt like, you know, it came to, to light. I still have the very notebook that I wrote down nice. <laughs> Yuval nice. in, yeah. And since then, um, Yuval has really expanded. I mean, you know, I saw some of the water projects that you mm-hmm. were doing in Nigeria. So the cost of putting that together, it's one thing <laughs> yeah. to lead with love, which right. I think is incredible. <laughs> but when I looked at the the magnitude of the project, I'm just kind of like, I don't even know how I would personally get the courage, you know, to be able to do it. So for you, how did that idea come about? And being able to get the support, did you have to get local government mm. involved, people within the community for sustainability? Yes. How did it How did it actually work? Because that project is incredible. And just the fact that you brought dignity back to an entire mm. community. Yeah. When I I'll kind of take you back, when I first started Yuval, it was, you know, to make a difference. It was, I didn't, I guess, start with a mindset of like an entrepreneur or something like that. And there's no right way to start, but this is just my journey. And I think it got to a point though, where I, I asked myself some few years back, maybe four or five, that what is, what's the long-term plan with you, Val? What are we really doing? And I really realized I want this to outlive me. I want it to make a lasting difference. That's not just patchwork sustainability is at our core. So we, we did a huge shift. Um, I looked at some of it was looking at the data from our different outreaches we've been on, like the types of diseases we kept seeing over and over again. And there were waterborne diseases, you know, like clockwork, kept seeing it. And so we felt like it just makes sense. If you're going to have any kind of program that deals with quality health care, it has to be multifaceted and comprehensive that deals with everything from like wellness, emotional health, things like water, basic needs, food, even though our mm-hmm. primary umbrella is healthcare, but all of these are um, social determinants of health. 
that we'd like to address too. So that's why we launched Project WASH is because the communities that we're serving in primarily in Nigeria were suffering just dying even from mm. from that. So we launched it and I think your second part of the question is how did that come about? It yeah, it was quite yeah. it is expensive. <laughs> that's the truth. Mm. And um some might feel like it's daunting. I didn't have a background in, you know, waste management or sanitation or, or water, but I'm just that that dreamer. I love to just dream and visualize things. And I may not have that expertise, but I want to encourage someone that you may not have that, but others do. So as long as you're able to mm -hmm. communicate your vision and your why, there are other people that will be willing to come alongside with you. But it was a huge effort from folks over here and in Nigeria. So we have a team in Nigeria that works there with us that are Nigerians um, that did like the groundwork and we hire everyone that's local there because um, so we believe in that. And then, yes, it's community leaders, cultural leaders, government, et cetera. Was there a moment during the, the WASH project that you kind of were like, okay, this is, this is, <laughs> this is a lot. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Many yeah, times. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah. You know, what is the toughest <sighs> moment where you really had to dig deep mm. within yourself? Like if you can take us back to that feeling. Yeah, it was really tough. I think pioneering anything for the first time you sometimes can second guess yourself you know at first everyone was excited on the team We're like yes and it's going to be simple we thought we checked off everything and dotted all our t's like what could go wrong but there are things outside of our control especially if you're dealing mm -hmm. with um you know a country that has different kinds of issues like infrastructural security you name it all of those types of things can affect your projects and um, frustrate them. Mm. Strikes, we dealt mm. with, you name it, we dealt with it. <laughs> so it was yeah. really um, difficult. And I we tried, um, to be candid, we tried, I think, the three times before it was successful. Because Yuval mm. usually goes to like very remote places, like the hardest to reach where people kind of, you know, either forget about or say oh, it's too difficult to do. We like to go there. So I don't know. At first I was like, you know, my first project, maybe we should have done a, a simpler place. <laughs> you know, it's just a, a, a drill, a borehole in the ground. And, and then I, I had to dig deep and remember my why. And I'll never forget. It was like, the, we're getting ready for the third time to attempt this thing in the same area mm. that's very hard to just get water in. And um, we got the, we, we, we booked a new company to do the drilling. We even brought them from, from Kaduna, which is like northern Nigeria, all this stuff. Like, yeah, that's quite, and yeah, yeah, that's quite fun. Right, just to have, you know, more yeah. quality equipment and personnel and all of that. Yeah. Spend extra monies. And my team just felt like, I remember the lead project manager said, you know, Faith, I don't, I don't know if we can complete this thing. Um, because the, the, the drillers in the whole area went on strike. Has nothing to do with us. It had to do with like the fuel prices and inflation. And, you know, they weren't oh making gosh. any money. Like, I understand. <laughs> but yeah. everyone else had to suffer. So we were booked, I think, for something like on a, a Friday. Then they called on Thursday and said, we're going on strike. Like, everybody in the whole region. <laughs> so that's when my team... Are you like, you mean the whole, whole region? Like the whole... Like the whole no, the whole state. Like, yeah, that we were oh in. My gosh. They were... So yeah. you can find another driller and say, oh, can you just go? <laughs> so we had to wait. <laughs> 
and it was a, a faith kind of journey. And then that's when I had to really just keep speaking like life into the situation. My team saying that this will be completed. We've committed to this and the strike ended. And, you know, just like that, it was done. <laughs> and so, that's incredible. Yeah. Before we started recording, we were talking a bit about mm. your trip. You're visiting South Africa. And yes. of course, food is a thing that brings us Africans together. Mm. So what was when you went to South Africa? Did you go there for Uval? What was that like? What project were you working on? Sure. Um, yeah, the first time we uh, Uval went to South Africa was in 2018. And that was my first visit there. Mm-hmm. And, um, nice. you know, I, I had uh, thought about expanding there. Never had I been there, but I've heard a lot about some of the challenges that women face particularly, mm-hmm. especially with gender-based violence mm-hmm. and all of that. And my husband, um, although he's Nigerian, he lived there for several years. And so even when I met him, he was there. We did our kind of first outreach there that was very much centered around women empowerment and kind of going back mm-hmm. to our, like what we did back when we first started, not so much mm-hmm. homeless as people would visualize, but these were women in a transitional housing center. So that have gone mm-hmm. through, you know, domestic violence. They were there with their children. So um, it was a bit of helping them, of course, with supplies and essentials. But beyond that, really spending time with them, working on things like mindset, how to um, Mm -hmm. identify red flags and things like that. And so that's been our primary focus in South Africa is is woman empowerment. And for you, um, what would you say... um you know, because there's so many different things that Uval does. Yeah. So for somebody who's listening, you know, they they kind of are like trying to understand. Okay, <laughs> yeah. it's United Vessels of Love. We hear the water project. We hear about the you know healthcare and bridging mm-hmm. the gap. We hear now about gender-based violence. Mm. So what would you say with regards to it? Are you do you feel that you're just almost going with the flow, but not in a bad way, going with where the need is? Or what, what would you say are the core pillars of Uval? Sure. Yeah, Uval actually has four core pillars. Overall. Overall, we're described as an international healthcare relief organization. So essentially what that means is we usually go into places that are in huge need. We're alerted of a particular area that needs our help or somebody's help, and they're having a hard time, whether it's um, in these umbrellas of uh, healthcare, you know, things with mental health and women or water. So our four pillars are that we do medical outreach. Here in the United States, we work with the homeless populations. And when I say outreach, we literally go to where folks are in need. So um, it could be Mm -hmm. in the street, it could be in a village in Nigeria and provide free medical care and or surgeries. And then we focus on health education. That's our second pillar where we go out and do different workshops on health topics. And then it's the woman empowerment that I mentioned, which is now expanding to a new campaign called Value Her. So now Value Her Mm -hmm. will be some woman empowerment, but it's also a focus on women's health and maternal child mm-hmm. health. And that um, will be in, I think, all, uh, it will be in South Africa, Nigeria, and Uganda. So we just launched there. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm Ugandan. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, oh, that's I'm Uga- amazing. Yeah. Okay. I'm Ugandan. Yeah. Uganda lives in South Africa. Wow. <laughs> and then, yeah, the fourth oh, wow. pillar is just that. the water and sanitation. Yeah. So those are the things that we do right. and focus on. But yeah, it is yeah. a lot. That's awesome. Outside mm-hmm. of like the funding, like how do you, 
how do you how are you able to get funding? Do you get donors? Is it from the community that helps? And also with volunteers, because I imagine going to different countries, you need to be able to find people who are willing to take time out of their schedule and that kind mm -hmm. of thing. So when it comes to volunteers and actual funding to be able to execute your project, how do you navigate that? Sure, Uval is primarily funded by the public um, since our inception, which is really amazing. It just goes to show how wonderful people are in supporting uh, work like this. And then secondly, uh, we do have corporate sponsorships and partners that either donate funds or sometimes infrastructure, a building, supplies, etc. to us. And then we do get grants as well from time to time. Um, and then we are actually 100% volunteer-led, which is, I'm always proud to say, so we do have a staff, we call them a resource staff, but they are volunteers. They're in primarily, most of them are in Nigeria, because that's where we have our biggest think, wow. programs running there. Mm -hmm. And then um, we have volunteers that we cycle through here in, in the United States, like a pool of volunteers that will come, and then same in Nigeria. When we do our outreach missions in Nigeria or South Africa or Uganda, we recruit volunteers and we primarily get them from within the country and then we travel with just a small group from the United States. That's just our model that we believe in because we feel that, you know, we don't want to come and bring just our ideas and say <laughs> this is what we should do. And there are a lot of great people within these different African countries that are very skilled, knowledgeable, with big hearts, but are again, they're looking for opportunities of how, where, where can I volunteer? How can I do this? So that's kind of our structure. Yeah, I really love that because having a lot of people in the actual countries and the communities is so important because, you know, at the beginning of the conversation, you mentioned about how people would just do, would just go for an operation without an anesthesia because <laughs> you don't know when they're going to come exactly. next. And once you're able to train people in the community, that helps, I'm sure, with sustainability because otherwise it's just like a throwing a party, mm -hmm. you know, for lack of a better example, yeah. like coming in and out. like, whoo, that was a great party. Do you remember? Right. <laughs> like, you know, that, that was a... <laughs> Yeah. Like it's kind of like that, you know, so I think that it just from my understanding with Yuval, the community being at the heart of yeah. it and being able to get people in the community involved is probably one of the um, the reasons why the foundation has got such a high sustainability, sustainability rate. So that's really just, you know, it's awesome because, yeah, you don't want people to think that help comes from the outside. Right. So you are part of like, and this is a mouthful because... I mean, I know in America, everybody has this, I don't know, Sigma Tattoo. What is it? Yeah. Sigma Tattoo. Sigma I've been, Theta I've been practicing the word in my head. I've been yeah. practicing it in my head. But between my Ugandan, South African, and now in Ghana, I think nothing. It was not connecting. Yeah. Sigma Tattoo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. It's an um, International Nursing Honor Society. So it's an honor society mm -hmm. where there's nurses from all around the world that um, either mm -hmm. academically or in their career have done well or achieved a certain status. Mm -hmm. So it's an invite only. They'll invite you to be inducted into this society. And really their focus is just all about um, development and support for other nurses around the globe and elevating the profession as well. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. And for you, just being invited to be part of Inter <laughs> yeah, Sigma. We usually call um, it the Sigma. 
<laughs> okay, Sigma, yeah. being part of thank you, being part of Sigma just for you. Um, what did that, what did that feel like for you? Um, to be to be able to be awarded this kind of honor. It it felt amazing, honestly. Just mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. now that you have a little bit of insight about my, especially my academic journey. It felt great. It felt like wow. Mm-hmm. At this point in my career, I've um, made an impact or a difference, and it, it's noticeable and so it felt wonderful to be honored by your peers. Yeah. And for you, um, just even being awarded the the African Heart, um, you know, for the Humanitarian Africa Awards, what does that feel like? Because you don't seem like the kind of person that's doing it for props or for bragging rights, but it must be quite amazing for you to be like, wow, this is all happening. And it all started with a dream of seeing, <laughs> yeah. of, of seeing what it was that you were going to be doing. Yeah, absolutely. It is amazing. I, I always try to remember how I started and that keeps me grounded and humbled but I it really meant so much to me to win that recent award from Hexamedia because there's just something about I mean there's tons of different awards that exist and you know I'm here in the states but that was my first award like in Africa by Africans and I just it just felt great especially me that was born here bred here it almost felt so much like my family was saying, hey, we see you, we embrace you, mm-hmm. and we celebrate you, and there's nothing like that, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, you know, right at the beginning we were, we were talking and you mentioned about how your parents were like, they thought they wanted you to be an actual yes. doctor. So, <laughs> you know, when I think about it, because um, I know one of my sisters, she's she's in public health and everything, you know, you, you almost never imagined that nurses can have the global impact right. than, <laughs> that what you have mm-hmm. had, right? So isn't that like, isn't that like quite a mind shift? Like what mm. would you tell people about that just from your life lesson that they can learn in terms of what it is that you're doing, you know, like to kind of stay on your path? Like what would you, what kind of mm. um, inspirational, motivational words would you share just based on the fact that you're doing what people did not think was possible? Yeah, I just don't believe in the impossible for one I think it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. your background or how you started. It's more about how you finish, you know, and Mm -hmm. just expose yourself, connect with others with that maybe are in the field or have done things that you're interested in. You don't necessarily have to emulate them, but look at different people of what they've done well, Mm -hmm. even if you don't personally connect, you know, in this um, digital age, there's YouTube, there's this, there's that. I love to to just kind of look and see, like take a sample, what's working, and then connect that with with you, what you align with, and then move forward and just be consistent in whatever you want to do and show up. And I think naturally people will respect that and take you seriously, and eventually it's going to fall into place. When I first started, many people didn't think I was serious People thought it was a hobby or someone would ask like, oh, are you still doing that U-Ball yeah. thing? And then I remember when, <laughs> yeah, literally, when that shift happened, it was like, whoa, this is different now. And now, you know, now I'm on podcasts. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, you're like, now I'm on podcasts. Yeah. yeah. But uh, honestly, <laughs> it's been really so amazing having this conversation with you. I love everything that U-Ball stands for, just seeing the work that you're doing, the impact, getting communities involved you know, all of that. And just, and even, you know, it's so lovely to speak to somebody who started a foundation and you can actually feel the heart of their foundation in their personality. Mm, so I think you. that that's, you know, cause people are not always who you think that right. they are. <laughs> 
you know, but yeah, I really wish you all the best, Faith. Honestly, if people want to get involved, if they want to be able to support Uval, if they want to raise awareness about something happening in their community, anything like that, how can they uh, get hold of you? Absolutely. I just invite everyone to follow us on all our social media channels. We're on everything from, I think, everything but Twitter. <laughs> Not yet. But we are on LinkedIn, <laughs> Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. Our um, website is u-volfoundation.org. If you're interested in becoming a volunteer, visit our website. And yeah, you can connect with me as well. I'm also on all the social media channels. And I love hearing from people. So Thank you so much for taking time out in your day. I know that you're really busy. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's been really great chatting to you. And, you know, I was just thinking about it now because mm. in my mind, I'm like, how am I even going to close this conversation? Mm. But literally it's from the perspective of the dream that you had mm. to when I, when we just read your name, you know, being faith, like mm. literally your life mm. is a journey of faith, Absolutely. honestly speaking. Yeah. <laughs> it's like everything is connected. Faith and love, all of it is yeah. connected. So yeah, we really wish you all the best. And I'm sure that you all is going to go from strength to strength. So thank Amen. you very much. And congratulations on the awards and just all the amazing work that you're doing and for the heart that you have um, for the work that you thank do. Thank you so much, Lee. I, I really appreciate it. Um, I love being a guest and also shout out and thanks to Hexamedia Africa as well. Now on to our second guest on this very special episode of the Africa Whisperer. We're thrilled to introduce a dynamo in the realm of social entrepreneurship, nonprofit and communications. Emanuela Imo, better known as Miss Ella, has dedicated over half a decade to catalyzing genuine social change, wielding the power of digital media and communications. Not only is she the driving force behind Hexa Media, assisting countless African nonprofits in their digital journeys, but she's also the brains and heart behind projects like the Social Impact Marketing Summit and the Humanitarians of Africa series. Named as one of the top 50 African female change makers, Miss Ella's influence is vast and impactful. Alrighty, Emanuela, welcome to the Africa Whisperer. I'm so excited to have this conversation. I love speaking to women who are all about impact and, so, and society and change making and are passionate about the work that they do. And you definitely are that. Thank you. Um, yeah. I mean, just everything. I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give you props, <laughs> you know, being one of the top 50 women, uh, um, who've made impact, being getting that kind of award, you know, just all the different things you've done and also starting Hexa Media, yeah. Emanuela Communications. I mean, <laughs> which one is it again? Which one is it again? <laughs> This is me trying. This is my fake night. Just uh, don't mind me. I'm vanilla. You're trying. <laughs> you're trying. I did try. Yeah, you did. I did you try. Tried, oh, I did you try. tried. <laughs> but Emanuela, welcome to the Africa Whisperer Thank again. You. Um, you know, you obviously are doing. Yeah, you're you're basically doing the work that society needs. Mm. So it's awesome to be able to talk to yeah. you. Let's. Because we're talking a bit about Hexamedia, we're talking about um, NGOs, yeah. we're talking about the importance of getting their messaging out mm -hmm. there and, you know, partnering that with communications. Yeah. I would like to know a bit more about your story. Okay. Talk to us about, um, you know, when you were studying in Wari and how you actually got into the NGO sector, so to speak. Okay. Uh, my story uh, is quite a long one, but I'll give you an abridged version for the purpose of, of time. Uh, so... I think it started from being born into a missionary family. My dad happens to be a missionary and he runs a 30-year-old faith-based organization called Teenagers Outreach Ministries. So I was born into, you know, that environment and I 
seen a lot, you know, experienced a lot. And then all through my life, having to see people needing help, wanting to help them. And then I moved down to worry for my National Youth Service Corps program, which is a compulsory one-year um, dedication, you know, to the country, Nigeria, for every youth after university. So uh, when I was in worry, I was posted to a secondary school, a government secondary school. And I'm sure you've heard about stories of government schools and how how rowdy, how busy, you know, that's where most of the children go to. And if you've also heard stories about the Niger Delta region of Nigeria, you would know that there are issues of um, sexual prevalence, uh, you know, teenage pregnancy and all of those kind of things. And so when I started serving in the school, I was teaching French. I noticed that a lot of these young people were, were succumbing to so many social vices, drugs, cultism. Some of them were getting pregnant. They were engaging in sexual relationships as young as 12, 10. And for me, that was really devastating. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I, I was like, mm. how exactly can I help these children? Because they could do better. They could be better despite the environment they found themselves. And that passion, wanting to help these children was what led me to start my nonprofit. So after being born into a family that, you know, had a faith-based organization and all of that, I ventured into starting my own nonprofit out of a passion to help these young people. Being born into a family where my dad was already a missionary having to help young people. And then I worked in a community, you know, where a lot of young people were, were you know, victims of social vices and all of that. I really wanted to help them. And the best way I could was to empower them with um, skills. So then that was like 2016, I think. Yeah, around 2016. What I was doing was getting volunteers to teach them, you know, different skills, like how to make handbags, how to make shoes, how to make hair accessories. And um, mm. we had people who, you know, would volunteer every week to teach them how to make some of these things. And when they do, they were able to sell them to make money for themselves. This way they were self-sufficient and they didn't have to um, do drugs or sleep around to make money. And that was where my journey in the nonprofit space mm. started. I did that from 2016, 2017. And then 2018, I had to leave Nigeria mm. for my master's. And I think that was where I stopped being actively involved in, you know, having to be on ground to run a nonprofit mm. organization. And I sort of, I won't call it pivoted, but I would say I, I grew into doing something bigger, which is right now bigger than me. Um, and that was where the passion or the vision for Hexamedia came about uh, at about 2018. I couldn't run my own nonprofit mm. anymore because I didn't have structure. I didn't do a lot of things properly. So when I left Nigeria, everything just crumbled, you know, and I was looking for solution. I needed to be able to help these kids mm. because they kept reaching out to me on Facebook, on WhatsApp, and Tiela, please come back. We need you. Mm. Um, Things haven't been the same since you left and all of that. And I started to feel guilty. And I, I started to imagine that there were other founders like me who, you know, were going through the same things and they were finding it difficult to help people from a distance. And so I just, 
I just wanted to do something. And I started to study communications for my master's. Mm. And from communications, I started to learn so much. I started to research because, you know, when you're doing a master's program, you have to research a lot and write. So in my research, in my writing, my mind started to, you know, blow up. I was seeing a lot of opportunities in communications and marketing, especially mm. for African nonprofits. And that was where I started. So I started as Ella Communications um, oh. as a 2018, but earlier this year, 2023, we rebranded to Hexa Media because the vision at the moment is much larger than me. And so we had to include so many other things. And I think that's a, an abridged version of my story. <laughs> Your story is so powerful. Literally, we could just end it there and say, <laughs> drop the mic, you know, because I think that it's so great when there's purpose and just one thing yeah. flows into another. But just before we go into yeah. Hexa Media and, you know, I really want to find out about just even marketing for nonprofits and, you know, where we sit as nonprofits yeah. in Africa and the differences that can be made, because I know you have yeah. a lot of insight with that. And I think that it's so important mm -hmm. that we share it. I did want to say, you know, sometimes in our failures, that's where we yes. learn the most yes. about something. So, um, you mentioned about, you mentioned about how, um, this amazing NGO that you had started that was helping young people, to, uh, you know, with social, with yeah. social vices and putting them into more, to be able yeah. to do other things to mm -hmm. take care of themselves. When you left, I can imagine on a personal level, level that it must yes. have destroyed you to have seen yes. it falling apart, right? Yes, it did. But what is the lesson that you learned from the, from the way that the NGO then did not end up working out the way that you thought it had like what are the key lessons that you learned that you would advise other people when they when they developing and building an NGO I learned a lot of lessons right I learned a lot of lessons I think the first thing for me would be to have a proper structure in place for your organization and sometimes when I tell African founders structure they think we mean um, having it on paper it's much more than having it on paper. You need to mm. have people you can trust, people who mm. are trained and processes that you can leave behind you so that when mm. you are not available, people can look back on those processes that you have left and follow through. So I didn't have processes. I didn't have people I could trust. I just had my volunteers. They were not members of my core team. So when I wasn't available, they were not doing anything. And I think another thing was having to do mm. everything by myself, which was sort of like, because I had trust issues then, having to leave things in the care of people. <laughs> so having to, having to yeah. do everything by myself, I, I didn't let other people in. So they could learn what I was doing and they could duplicate the process. One thing that founders do now is make that mistake. You just make it about you and not about having to bring in other people, you know, so that you can okay. pass the button on because life is short. Anything can happen. It mm. could be relocation. It could be marriage. It could even be death. So what happens in that case? Uh, does your legacy die with you? Um, so I think that was one powerful lesson mm -hmm. I learned structure, trusting people and training people to help you with the work. Um, for me, that was like the greatest lesson. I love that because it's really, it, it even, um, gives this whole idea of from when you start, you know, your NGO, even in this case, I guess yes. any project, you kind of need to have a yeah, legacy exactly. plan, you know, you need to have exactly. a succession plan and something that, yeah, everybody's guilty of is not trusting yeah. people enough. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And you've got to give people that yeah. you work with the opportunity to be able to show um, what it is that they can yeah. bring that's different to your organization. That's a lesson for me, actually. <laughs> that's why I'm saying it out loud. So 
<laughs> you know, when yeah. God just does that, just know, drops just it, like, shines a light on <laughs> you. So now with regards to yeah. NGOs, right? I think that uh, as Africans, we have a really complex relationship yeah. with them. You know, when I think, you know, with NGOs, it's like, okay, NGO versus a charity. Most of the time when NGOs come, they're from outside of Africa. They're not, you know, within Africa, like, you know, and then people are like, if I'm in Africa, why am I going to start an NGO? Please, me and my family, <laughs> we also, need help. you know, we're dealing with many things. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? We need to help ourselves. How am I going yeah. to help mm-hmm. you? You know? So with regards to that, like what would be your, what case would you put forward about the importance of NGOs in that, in that perspective, from an African perspective and in the importance of NGOs from Africa um, dealing with social issues within Africa? What, what case would you make for it? Well, I think one word that I always say, I don't know if it's one word, but one thing I always say is um, NGOs are the last hope of the people in solving social problems in Africa. Mm. That's how I see it because um, you're an African, I'm an African. Um, we know how our countries are, how our leaders are. A lot of them are selfish. A lot of them mm. are not visionary. A lot of them do not care about people. So NGOs are, or the founders of these organizations are the people who have the heart to solve different problems in the society. And these are the people who can, you know, reach out to the grassroots level, people who are at the bottom of the food chain and they can solve their problems. And so that's why you see a nonprofit goes to a community and they give them access to water. So this is something that the government is supposed to be doing and the people are celebrating. That's, that's mm. what NGOs do. So for me, they are just problem solvers. They are just, um, helpers of the government basically to help solve the problems that the governments are not paying attention to or the people in power are not paying attention to. That's basically how I would see it or how I always see it for me. Sure. That's so, that's so powerful. Really it is. And just the thought that it literally is like the future depends on us yes. as people. Cause if we're going to wait for government, we'll be waiting for a very long time, you know? Exactly. Exactly. And now, um, just in terms of like the, I, uh, the narrative, cause I always feel that in order to be able to change people's minds, you've got to change their hearts. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and there is a lot of distrust and narrative, uh, you know, I speak about from an African context, like all of us, you know, we, we get concerned when somebody says that they have an NGO, they have a charity, they're doing this good work. There's always questions like, please, where's the money going? I saw you driving this car. What is it again? You know, please, you just had a big wedding. You know, there's all of these, you I understand, get it. you heard me. There's yes, you know, I understand. You get it. Just in terms of that and getting us as, you know, get, getting us as Africans to really support and get behind African NGOs, because one of the things we can be honest with is that whenever an NGO comes in from outside of Africa, we are more like, oh, they're trustworthy. But when it's somebody right within the community, you know, we just kind of are like, you know, you're not the one I'm going to be supporting. So what, what, what are your thoughts around that? Um, I have a lot of things to say about that, but I do not want to, I, I do not want to, you know, wash the dirty linen of non-profits right here in public. <laughs> But then I, I'm just going to say a few things. Um, you you wouldn't blame people who complain or who do not want to help African organizations. Mm-hmm. This is as a result of the way founders and organizations have carried 
um, gone about their activities or gone about their projects. Now, one very big issue we find in the African nonprofit space is the issue of transparency. So a lot of founders, a lot of organizations do not carry out their activities or their programs or whatever they do mm. with transparency. They are not transparent. Mm. When we talk about trust and transparency, it's important that African organizations are able to show the process most times behind the work that they do, tell their stories, have digital footprints, because this is where people can go and verify what if what they say this do is true you know so imagine i tell you i run an organization that caters to african organizations and you go and you search for me on linkedin or on instagram or facebook and nothing comes up what comes up in your mind you begin to doubt mm. that i'm actually doing what i say i do so they haven't built that that trust factor they haven't um built trust with their audiences and their organizations transparency is an issue another issue is also you know we're living on the past reports or the past records or histories of people so because these things have happened before it's quite difficult to change the narrative or the minds of people from what has already happened so you hear that people stole a certain amount of money under the name of an organization and you just don't want to support anyone again you don't blame them so um, for me, I wouldn't blame the people. I blame the organizations because they're not doing so well in trying to build trust and also be transparent. Um, another thing that helps transparency is annual reports. A lot of organizations do not do that that thing called annual yeah. report. So you have people who have donated to your organization one time or frequently, whichever way. I would expect as a communications person that at the end of the quarter or at the end of the project or even the year, you are able to send a report of whatever project or whatever activity that you know, when happened, how much was um, donated, how much was spent, what were the success stories, you know, all of those kind of things. African nonprofits of their founders do not see these as important. And so all of these issues pile up to become a very big thing. And then you see people don't just trust them. So for me, that's really what happens when it comes to all of these doubts with nonprofits. And for you, because um, from my understanding, you've worked um, through your, your agency and through Hexamedia, of course, as well. Um, you've interacted and worked with about 700 um, nonprofit organizations. Am I correct? Well, uh, we've worked with up to 700, but we have access to at least 5,000 in 15 African yeah. countries. Yes. 700 is still a lot because, you know, to be honest, like I didn't even know. I didn't even know that there were that many African um, nonprofit organizations that were functioning and doing well there are a lot of them yeah because it's, it's the messaging about it like i didn't know that there were that many that were doing amazing work mm -hmm. you know um within it so for you when it comes to being able to to vet and decide who you're going to be working with and, uh, and associated with because obviously if you work with a you know non-profit it could end up and something shady is happening like they're busy chopping the ten thousand that's coming <laughs> in here or there it could you know it will reflect badly yes. on on Hexa Media as an organization. So what is your vetting process, especially when we live in a continent where there's a lack of data and data? Do you get what I said yeah, there? I guess. There's a lack <laughs> of data and data. So how, how are you able to vet it? Okay, so um, I think two things have stood out for us in the course of the work that we have done. Um, I think 
not I think, the first thing is integrity. So I'm someone who holds my name very dearly. And a lot of people know that wherever you call Emanuela Imo, you hear the name, you know that this person is a person of integrity. And if I say I can do something, I will do it. And I will keep to my word. If I say I can't do it, I'm that sincere, I will tell you. So I think for me, the first thing is having to be clear on the facts and just stick with what is possible and let 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 everyone know upfront this is not possible you know so that has helped me in having to work with people directly also having to bring in my own personality into working with organizations so even though i have a team that works with me as much as i can i try sometimes to get involved in whatever happens not fully but let people see who is the face behind whatever is happening let them get that personal touch with me i'm able to um you know see what is going on and i've also been able to teach my team how to filter some of those people we have a lot of processes that does that so when we're working with them in terms of our services but beyond that another thing we've been able to do is to build a platform where we work with african non-profit organizations in different dimensions so some of them do not work with us directly some of them just take part in our trainings we do a lot of capacity building trainings um, so when they come on board they get to see me or any member of the team and you know we get to one way or the other, find out about them. And then we went forward to building a directory, which um, the idea behind the directory was to solve this particular problem of trust between people in Europe and outside Africa and Africa, you know, having people who are abroad to trust organizations. So we're building a community of organizations that people can trust and we know they can deliver. So we have a vetting process for that, which would require um, organizations having been registered, they have to be registered. Um, they have to be able to show their annual reports if they are not registered. Now, why we did that was wow. um, there are some organizations um, in some countries that require very tedious registration processes. So for countries like Kenya, for countries like um, Zimbabwe, they have very tedious registration processes for organizations. Um, so when this happens, you may not be able to, you, you can't really blame them when they don't have a certificate to prove, you know. But then I would expect that you have some sort of structure and you have your annual report to show that you have been doing some work, you are accountable. With that, if you are not registered yet, you should have your annual report to show for it. So when they show their annual reports, they show their um, organization certificate. We also do our vetting via social media, which is like the easiest form for us to see what they're what they've been doing. Um, sometimes we get to talk with them. We have um, our research team that gets to talk with these people and just hear from them what they do. So it's a lot of work, but then um, we're doing all of this so that we can sort of break that trust issue that happens in the nonprofit space. That's how we have been able to vet um, a lot of organizations. Yes. In terms of Hexamedia and the work that you're doing, yeah. um, the focus is to to bring a spotlight on and you know mm -hmm. digital market for digital marketing yeah. pardon me for non-profit organizations in Africa yeah. right so marketing and digital marketing you know it can go many ways because yeah. I'm like I imagine it's very difficult to do like a TikTok <laughs> challenge you know around <laughs> you know you saw all the visions going through yeah. you know what I mean uh -huh. like 
what are some of the key ways that you would market, say, a nonprofit organization differently to a for-profit organization? Okay, so one key thing that, that works in nonprofit marketing sector space is the emotions factor. So when you're trying to market a nonprofit, you are playing with the hearts of people. You're having to build and leverage on their emotions. So we have to tell stories. Oh. For example, you're trying to market a skincare product to me. Um, I just care about what it would do for my face or for my skin and how I would look after. But when it comes to nonprofit marketing, you're trying to get someone to care about someone else's problems. So it's quite dicey. You need to, you need to get through to me, to my heart. You need to touch my emotions for me to care because I have my own problems too. So why should I care? So when it comes to marketing for nonprofits, founders need to look at why? Why should the donor care? Or why should the organization care? And to answer why, you need to tell stories. So storytelling is something that is very, very important. And when we say storytelling, a lot of founders take it the wrong way. They think they we want them to go and, you know, be on video and be talking and telling. We don't want to hear all of that talk. We want to see you are mm. going to a community to provide water for these people. Take us through the process of how you met them before they had water, the process it took you to getting water to their community and the emotions that these people had or expressed when you finally brought water to their community. This is all your, that's like, that's all donors want yeah. to see. They just want to see the process. They want to see the pictures. They want to see the videos. They want to be able to connect with what you're saying. That's why you see some people are passionate about girl child issues. When you call cases like, um, sexual harassment, domestic violence, some people would not bat an eyelid. They would just donate. But there are some people you mm. mention environmental, um, conservation is dear to them. That's what they care about. So it's a thing of the emotion, you know, it's a thing of the heart. Mm. So you need to be able to tell stories that connect with these people. And so we leverage different platforms to tell stories. Basically, that's what nonprofit marketing is about. Let's just hit the nail on the head that way, because there are so many other things, you know, that happen behind the scenes before all the stories come out, um, the designs, the branding, the messaging, you, the platforms, all of those things, those are just the technicalities. The major thing is the story you're able to tell and who you're telling the story to. Because if you're telling a story of hunger to someone who doesn't really care about hunger, the person won't move. Or if you're telling the story of hunger to someone who is passionate about putting the food on someone's table, they would move easily. They would move easily. You don't need to do so much. So for me, that's how... That's what nonprofit marketing is about. It's a thing of emotions, really. Even when I think about that and um, using digital media, social media to be able to put your stories forward and yeah. um, using it as a great marketing tool. Mm -hmm. One of the ways that most, like a lot of for-profit brands, <laughs> uh, you know, they go about it is that they'll get ambassadors, they'll yes. get, you know, spokespeople and yes. so forth. Already with, with brands, like with major brands that have crazy money and everything, mm -hmm. they always are worrying about the person's, I don't know, for lack of a better word, like, their morals. They don't want to be embarrassed. Okay? Yes. They don't mm -hmm. want to be embarrassed by the person mm -hmm. that they select. It's yeah. even worse in the nonprofit Profit sector. Space, I mean, yeah. in, I mm -hmm. mean, in the nonprofit sector, I can imagine. Mm -hmm. So for that, like what advice would you give to people if they perhaps, um, 
they know somebody who's from their community and they want to get them involved as like a almost like a face or brand ambassador like what advice would you give because the wrong face can literally tank an entire yeah. mm-hmm. um, NGO you know yeah yeah you're right you're very right and yes um having to work with brand ambassadors is a very huge huge step in the right direction to to marketing your organization that's one way you can connect with people because people are moved to take action by other people. So imagine Beyonce coming to tell us to take action because a lot of us are Beyonce fans would definitely want to do what Beyonce is doing. It's, it's a thing of influence, you know? So yeah. we call that influencer marketing. If an organization wants to leverage brand ambassadorship or influencer marketing for their nonprofit, they have to do a lot of research. That's the first thing. You have to do a lot of research, very, very deep research. In the course of the Humanitarians of Africa Awards, which was something we just had, we had some nominees that our judges could not give the awards to. They couldn't do that. They couldn't do that because they had done their research and they were like, we cannot attach our names to this kind of person. I don't know Mm. if you get what I mean. Mm. And this was not because of an issue that had happened recently issues that had happened like four or five years ago but we did research and google showed us a lot of things you know so you need to be very careful researching is very important you need to dig deep you need to ask questions the right questions um, so after your research the next step is to put in a structure for your brand ambassadorship or your influencer programs so you can have people who are the face of your brands or brand ambassadors for free you're not getting anything in return There are some people who do it as a service to your organization. And I know some some small or medium-sized nonprofits may not be able to afford it. So in that kind of situation, you need to come to an agreement on what you're going to be giving the influencer or the individual in return. Some people can be giving material things they would accept. Some people may want um, a percentage of whatever comes out of the whole Mm. fundraising activity or whatever the campaign is, you need to be clear on what it is, the deliverables and what they get in return so that there are no issues in the long run. A lot of people take this for granted and they get into partnerships that destroy their organizations. And this is the social media age. Everyone can go on Twitter and just drop one tweet and everything skyrockets, you know, and becomes really crazy. So, You need to do your research, be clear on what your goal is, your goal for getting that person on board. What exactly do you need them to do? So what is the particular task or reason they are coming on board? After that, set your timeline, the deliverables deliverables on both ends. What are you giving them? What are they giving to you? I have all of this written out like a simple MOU one pager document and get Mm. both parties to sign and let it be legal. Get both parties to sign because when things go upside down, you have that document to show for it and you can go back. So for me, I think that would be like the first few steps you can take, which are very important. Your research, your goal and a document to back it up. And also, um, you know, just to add to that, I also think that sometimes when, um, people are picking, are picking like brand ambassadors or people to work with their NGO. It's not always about going for the most famous face, famous you know? face. Because yes. it can seem, yeah, it can seem so like 
you know, it's almost try to find somebody who would have like a, a natural brand connection and, you know, yes. versus just getting anyone, you know? Yes. Mm-hmm. Just because, for example, if Jay-Z is your favorite rapper, doesn't mean you're going <laughs> to yes. just put him out there. Yes. Do you get what I mean? Yes. Yeah. I think also, especially in the digital marketing space, we're also aware of like when something seems forced and that kind of thing. And so I also think it's about finding somebody with a natural connection yeah. to what it is that you're doing that would make sense. You know? Definitely. Spot on with that. Uh, also, if they get someone sometimes that is so famous, people get to read their reactions in whatever the person does mm. or the actions. They get to read messages mm. on the line, you know, if each action that happens. So just find someone that marries your mm. vision. You know, everything is in sync your vision, your mission, everything. Because if someone who does is not in sync with your mission or your vision as an organization, there's going to be a disjoint message that's going to be passed out. So everything has to be in sync, most definitely. And now talking about the mission and the vision of what it is that um, that your organization is doing, your NGO and so forth, with Hexameter, you've got fantastic projects and I did want to touch on them before um, we wrap up with you. Okay. First of all, you had a project where I think for six weeks you took um, NGOs through the process of like a tech training. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Basically, it wasn't six weeks. It's like a three days um, short training. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's a three days short training. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So what we usually do, which is one of the core mission or vision of Hexamedia is basically helping nonprofits and social enterprises in Africa leverage tech, digital media, and communications for the organization. So this is like what our focus is. Um, tech, full media representation, digital media, and communications. Um, so for that training, all we do is teach the nonprofit founders and communication team members how to leverage digital platforms, digital tools for their organization. So we take them through using different platforms. There are so many free platforms for nonprofits that a lot of them do not know about. So part of that training is to bring to light most of these um, platforms that they can use for their organizations for free at no cost. Um, Another Mm -hmm. part of that training is to walk them through how they can leverage digital fundraising for their organizations. So in Africa, we've shied away so much from having to use digital platforms, especially as non-profit organizations, because they think it's not for them. It wasn't created for them. So there are platforms now that are available that they can raise funds online without having to do it the traditional way. But most of them do not know how to do this. So part of that training is to train them on how to leverage online fundraising for the organization. So we have other trainings that we do, which are like our one-time capacity building trainings that cut across um, digital fundraising, social media marketing, how to use AI for your organizations, um, leadership um, programs for them, personal branding, because a lot goes into having to market your organization as a founder mm-hmm. and also from the organization level. So personal branding is one thing. Personal development is another. Applying for grants, you know, all of those kind of things. We have a lot of resource persons that come on board to train people who work with us or generally nonprofit founders because we reach out to as many people as possible monthly to join our capacity building training. So yes, those are the major trainings we do. And now just, um, I guess we're going to start, we're going to end off with the reason why we actually uh, initially were deciding to have this conversation yeah. um, around the Humanitarian of Africa Awards. Yeah. 
amazing initiative. Congratulations, Thank honestly you. speaking, for people who may not have heard about those awards. Talk to us about how that's been part of the Hexamedia Media strategy to amplify the voices of African NGOs um, and just some of the success stories and maybe highlight some of the, the NGOs that you know we should be hearing more about. The Humanitarians of Africa Awards um, is an offshoot of the Humanitarians of Africa series, which started as a series. Um, now it's more or less like a project. So basically the idea was was to give full media representation to African nonprofit founders and social enterprise founders. So we noticed that a lot of founders are not getting the media visibility for their work and they're doing so much, so much on the ground. And then you get to hear of bigger, bigger organizations like the Bill Gates Foundation, Charity Water. They are doing, these people are doing so much, you know. <laughs> but, um, yeah. the issue is there are Africans who are changing the lives of people on the ground. Nobody has really heard anything about mm. them. So, we decided to start sharing the stories of African founders. And when we're having this conversation, I told you I was doing my PhD program in Cyprus. So I'm not based in Nigeria. I had to do this online. So um, we started earlier this wow. year. Yeah, <laughs> we started earlier this year. Um, and we've shared so far the stories of 40 African nonprofit founders from seven African countries. And so when we started doing that, a lot of founders were excited to come on board to share their story, how they started, some of the challenges, their success stories. And on some of the episodes, I cry <laughs> because I get to hear about mm. stories of people that they are changing their lives. And these people, nobody knows about them, you know. And so we decided to award these people. They need to be recognized. They need to be celebrated for their work. And that was where the Humanitarians of Africa Awards came about. So from the series, which is just like an interview of founders, we moved over to the awards and um, we launched it this year, which was the very first um, edition of it. We had 1,000 and uh, 1,250 nominations from 17 African countries. Wow. <laughs> yeah. In 12 categories. Wow. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. For the first time, I was shocked. I was shocked myself. It wasn't about the numbers for me. It was about the fact that I was reading through the entries and I was seeing people from South Sudan, people from Egypt, people from Uganda, people from Malawi wow. doing amazing work. And I'm like, these are the people who want to see, you know. And so we we celebrated 12 winners um, in 12 categories finally. And even people in diaspora were not left out. We had a category for people who are Africans in diaspora, but are doing great work for Africans yeah. on the ground. And I'm sure you already interviewed one of our winners, Faith. Yeah. Faith Adole is doing really great work um, with Yuval Foundation. I think that's one of the founders you should look out for and one of the organizations you should also look out for. We had other organizations like She Code Africa and Grace Life Foundation and so many others. I can't even remember some of their names right now. Um, so yeah, that was, that was that's like what the Humanitarians of Africa Awards and Series is. And this is done um, under our summit. We have an annual summit, which is the Social Impact Marketing Summit, where we bring African nonprofit founders and social enterprises to learn about how they can leverage cutting-edge technology, digital platforms, you know, storytelling communications for the organization. It's an annual event. We usually um, have it, you know, we just added the awards to it. So it's just like one whole event, the summit and the awards. So yeah, that's basically a summary of, of that. That's incredible. So just in closing, imagine if 
hypothetically, I have to say hypothetically mm-hmm. because, you know, people will take a clip out. Hypothetically, if Africa had one leader, right, and you were the particular leader or the president of Africa, if all the nations were like one, mm. what is the one policy that you would make that would be able to change the way that nonprofit organizations in Africa or African nonprofit organizations that would make it easier for them to be able to function? For me, I think the one thing would be collaborative efforts with the private and the public sector. Why I'm saying this is, in the course of my work, I've noticed that a lot of organizations find it difficult to help the people they want to help. You can imagine how annoying that sounds. Mm. Um, you have people who have a heart to help, but the government are the ones making it difficult for them to reach out to these people or help the people that they want to help. It's crazy. So I think for me, if I was in a place of power or in a position where I could change some of these things, I would ensure that the public sector, the private sector are able to work together with the social um, sector to solve problems collaboratively. Um, for me, that that's going to be a very huge step in the right direction. And it's under our SDG goals, SDG 17, Partnership for the Goals. So I think that will be one very huge step in the right direction and makes things easier when it comes to problem solving in Africa. I love that. Thank you very much, Emanuela. Thank you. A.K.A. Miss Ella. Thank you. <laughs> CEO and founder of Hexamedia, Media. The ogre at the top when it comes to impact. Oh. I love this. I love everything about what you're doing. Thank you so and much. And you do it with such a joyous heart. You know, it's really incredible. Thank you. Yeah. And it's, you know, it really, it's like outside of having started your own NGO and the challenges that you face, mm-hmm. now putting everything that you've learned, you know, into a different way to be able to help a whole lot of people. That's really just the definition of legacy. Thank you. Emanuela Imo, thank you very thank much. Thank you so much, just- Lee. It was really great having this conversation with you. Thank you so much. And thank you for um, partnering with us to showcase the stories and tell more stories um, of the oh. founders. It really meant a lot to us having to work with podcasters to share more stories. That's really what we're about. We just want all founders to have full media representation. Let people know that great work is going on in Africa by great people, even though we don't know about them, but let's hear about them if we can. Yes, thank you so Special thanks once again to my very special guests, Faith and Miss Ella. The work that you're doing is so important and extremely inspiring. If you want to find out more about Yuval Foundation or about Hexamedia and how it is that you can support both of these amazing organizations, please go through to my website, theafricawhisperer.com for more information. Until then, we'll catch you on the next episode.